know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Amen. We thank God for that example and for His Word. Let's just come and pray. So, Father, we want to pray that by Your Word and by the power of Your Spirit that You'll speak to us and guide and lead us as clearly as You led Paul back in those wonderful days of Acts. Lord, speak to us of what it means to truly follow You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember, and this is way back in the first year or two that I was in ministry, so it must have made a big impression. I remember being at a Baptist Union assembly on, on missions night, and the focus was on BMS. And on that night, an appeal was made, was shared from the Sri Lankan Baptist Union. And what it was is that they wanted a pastor, a teacher, sent out to them to help them with their work. And they made only one seemingly unusual stipulation. That is, send us someone with grey hair. Now, at the time, I felt I could relax because I wasn't qualified. But, oh boy, I'm qualified now. In fact, I've reached the stage now where I don't care what colour the hair is. I'm just happy to have as much of it as I possibly can. But we all know, of course, what the Sri Lankans were actually saying, what they were really asking for. They were saying, send us someone of maturity. Send us someone who's learned the lessons of life, someone who's grown as a result of their experience. And, and by the way, the two, incidentally, don't always go together. Sometimes some people can be taught the same lesson, can go through the same experience many, many times and never really grow, never really learn as a result of that. Others, though, are quick learners. They're mature long, long before their hair is grey. And for me, it all depends on whether we have an open, teachable heart, mind, and spirit. But in the main, though, it is true that growth into maturity and grey hair do seem to go together. Well, today in Acts, and our studies in Acts, we're going to, to range over a fairly extensive period in Paul's life and ministry. Now, in order to save repetition, we're not going to spend time today and, and over the next few weeks going over in a, a kind of nitpicking, painstaking way. Much of, of what we would find in different situations we've already covered anyway during recent months. Rather, we're going to pick out some of the lessons that we can learn along the way from Paul during this highly significant chapter in his life as here he journeyed back towards Jerusalem and finally on to Rome. For here, as, as the life of, I believe, the greatest Christian ever to live begins to build towards its climax, a man truly committed and mature, well, there certainly are lessons, I believe, here 
for each of us to learn. The first lesson I want to pick out for you is a lesson of priorities. A lesson of priorities. But, but for you to, to really see this and grasp this, I think it's important for us. It has to be set in context. So the situation in Acts then covered uh, from the end of chapter 18 to the end of chapter 20 is that after leaving Corinth, Paul returns back to base, back to his home church in Antioch, Acts 18, 22 to 23, presumably to give them a, a report of his mission activity and, and of the progress that the gospel had made. Then he, he sets out on his third missionary journey, which is concentrated on Ephesus, where it's reckoned he spent approximately in total three years. And again, this, this period of ministry in Ephesus finished with, with Paul under attack, this time orchestrated primarily by pagan Gentile businessmen, men whose business interests had been affected by Paul's evangelism. It would seem that, that these men were involved in one way or another in, in the production of, of silver trinkets that were related to the worship of their pagan gods, and that they were annoyed by the damage that Paul's preaching was doing to their business and to their profits. Because you see, each convert to Christianity meant one less customer for them. And so they orchestrated what was basically a riot in protest, which culminates with Paul, the, the focus of their attention, deciding to leave Ephesus and head for Jerusalem. Well, which you can imagine with, at one level, with Paul removed out of the situation, would take some of the heat out of it. Well, eventually, Paul has to travel to Jerusalem by a pretty roundabout route because of Jewish intrigue. And you can read about this in Acts 20, verse 3. And probably it's been suggested this was a a planned assassination attempt where they, when they had him in an isolated fixed position on board a ship. Early on in this journey, though, Paul stops off in Greece, in all probability in Corinth. He stops there for three months, chapter 20, 23. It says he traveled through Macedonia, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he spent Three months. Now, now, we know that it was during this time that Paul wrote his great theological masterpiece, the book of Romans. Romans 15.25 allows us to position the writing of this letter precisely to this time. He says there, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. And in part, this gives us Paul's immediate reason for setting out on this particular journey. And that is that there was a situation of need in the church at Jerusalem. And so as an act of fellowship, as a highly significant demonstration of unity, Paul was going around the Gentile Christian churches that he'd been instrumental in founding. And he was raising money from among them for the support of their Jewish Christian brethren who'd had great difficulty, remember, accepting them as spiritual equals. There was, though, I believe, 
a deeper reason for and a a far more far-reaching vision behind this journey that Paul sets out on here. And Romans 15 again supplies us with this, this time in verse 23, where Paul says, Now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to see you, that is to see the church at Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. You see, Paul was leaving behind his old fields of evangelism in Greece and Turkey and the the lands surrounding because he was convinced that he'd completed the foundation work that the Lord had for him in particular there. And now he was going on, he was going on at the Lord's command, going on to new work, going on to new fields of evangelism. Not just to Jerusalem to supply them with gifts of money, but on from Jerusalem, on to Rome, and then on to Spain. Now here, Paul really was heading in to incredible danger in obedience to the will of God. You see, the Jews, as we've seen it again and again in Acts, the Jews invariably opposed him. They frequently actually attacked him, and on a number of occasions, they tried to kill him. And now, he's going to their capital. As for the Romans, we see it was absolutely, it was inevitable that they would see Paul's teaching, that they would see the Christian teaching of Jesus Christ as Lord as a threat to their emperor, as a threat to Roman imperial authority. And so it was inevitable that they would seek to ruthlessly crush this threat as they had all others through their history. So you see, as Paul sets out on this journey, as he sets out to fulfill this new task given to him by the Lord, well, he really was heading right into the danger zone and there can be no doubt that he knew that by doing this, he really was laying his life right on the line. And you see, I believe this does give us significant insight into the priorities, in fact, into the priority of Paul's life. For you see, it was also clear that, that around this time, there were some criticisms of Paul floating about. And one of these criticisms was that, you know, When it gets right down to it, when the going gets tough, Paul takes care to save his own skin. He talks a lot about living with Jesus as Lord. He talks a lot about dying for self. He talks about living for Christ and God's glory. But when it comes right down to it, he's not ready to put his own life on the line. Paul is insincere. Now, it would seem clear that this accusation was made against Paul, and and at least in Thessalonica, where they remember again because of the conspiracy of the Jews, he had to be smuggled out of that city at night and had not returned. Acts 17, you can read of that. And also in, in Ephesus, where, as we've just said, Paul again was forced 
to leave. And, and you can catch the, the flavor of this, of Paul in some way defending himself against these kind of accusations in 1 Thessalonians 2, for example, verse 1 and 2. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Verse 4, we are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Verse 6, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anyone else. We could go on and on, and we, and we find much of the same kind of flavor, the same kind of feeling in Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. So put all of this together. And what does this tell us about Paul's priority? It tells us that his priority was never, will this make me look good, make me popular? Will this enhance my reputation in the church? Will this make me seem heroic, sacrificial, even super spiritual? No, his priority was what does God want of me here? How in this situation can I best glorify the Lord? How can I most effectively use my life, marshal my gifts, my resources, everything I have for Him? for his kingdom, to build his church. And so you see, when he felt his work wasn't finished, wasn't complete in a mission field, he was prepared to make his escape. He was prepared to go on the run and to come back at it again. But when he felt God was expressly calling him to a new field of service, Paul was ready to go where God called him, no matter what the personal cost or danger. But now you see, you sometimes hear it said in, in Christian circles in regard to service, Christian service in regard to ministry of whatever kind, that I would rather burn out than rust out. I was once actually in a meeting with John MacArthur when he actually said that I'd rather burn out than rust out. And the inference here being that to kill ourselves literally in God's service, or to be killed, whether that's as a result of working ourselves to death or, or of being martyred, that this is in some way always praiseworthy. But as I once read somewhere else, it was actually in one of John Ortberg's book, out is out. It doesn't matter whether you burn out because of frenzied activity or whether you rust out because of laziness and inactivity. It doesn't matter. Out is out. And you see, the norm is that God doesn't want his people out of service. Now, he wants us to live for his glory. He wants us to build his church. He wants us to work together to establish something of his kingdom here on earth. By working hard, yes. Using our gifts and resources, yes. But husbanding them using them wisely, taking care of ourselves, of our lives, of our families in such a way that we can go on and on and on serving the Lord. We don't burn ourselves out. We don't put our lives at risk. 
unless we are convinced that at this time, this is God's will for me. You see, this is what we, I believe, find here in Paul's example, in his priorities. He didn't needlessly throw his life away in his first three missionary journeys. He didn't do that. No, he didn't, because he knew that God had more work for him to do there. But when the Lord explicitly called him to go and put his life on the line, then Paul was ready to follow. He was ready to go wherever God led. The second lesson, and it's going to be the final lesson today, that I want us to to draw out here is, is closely related, and so we're going to be able to look at it a fair bit more briefly, and and this is is a lesson of guidance. And this lesson arrives really out of this conviction of Paul's that the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, was leading him to Jerusalem, Acts 20, 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there? But then, as Paul is, is, is journeying to Jerusalem, as he's on this journey, we read this of his interaction with a group of disciples in Tyre, in Acts 21, verse 4. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. And it goes on. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem with this being followed up in in Acts 21.10 with this incident at Caesarea. We read there that after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agapus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So, what happened here? Did the Holy Spirit change his mind? Did he get it all wrong? Did Paul get it all wrong? Well, we know we're talking about a perfect, all-knowing God. So the problem in my mind here doesn't lie with the Spirit. Rather, it lies in the human vessels that the Spirit is channeled through. And and I believe that that second reading I shared there from Acts makes it clear where the problem actually lay. For you see, they got the prediction part of the prophecy right. They got it bang on. The Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. They got it right. That happened. Where they went wrong is with the implications that they drew from this. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You see the problem? They seem to find it difficult to take in, impossible to take in, that God might lead his faithful servant into danger and hardship, suffering and sacrifice, even 
into martyrdom. Now, don't we find the same kind of outlook all too frequently around in the the church of today? Don't we find that? You know, there was a time in the past when a very popular piece of guidance advice was always take the road on which the shadow of the cross falls. And what it seems to me that was saying was, basically, if something makes you miserable, it must be God's will. And I've got to say, I'm not happy with that kind of outlook. I'm not happy with that kind of blanket statement. But neither am I happy with the view that unless something makes you happy, unless it makes you comfortable, it can't be God's will for you. I mean, can we really be following the Lord of the cross when we're not willing to follow him and to believe he's leading us into hardship, into suffering, into sacrifice. Now, to balance this, of course, often as we fulfill God's will for us, we will experience happiness as this world understands it. And God does give to his people of the good things of this world. Doing God's will and being happy and enjoying life are by no means incompatible. But to tie these two together is a mistake. It's wrong. For God does sometimes call us to sacrifice and suffering. And no matter what, if God's calling us, as our hearts are open to the Lord, in the midst of it, we will always know the joy of the Lord, the joy that comes, the supreme joy in knowing Him, in pleasing Him, in knowing His blessing, knowing His pleasure as we serve Him. Do you see, though, how Paul's experience here all fitted together? His priority was God's glory. He was focused totally on building God's church, on establishing His kingdom. Not on on what will make me happy or, or comfortable, what will make me popular or successful. No, His priority, what came first for Him on every occasion, was the glory of God. And because of that, He got His guidance right. Because this was the priority of his life. Because this was the way his life was focused. Paul got his guidance right. You see, Paul was marching to a different drumbeat to that of many of his contemporaries. He followed God's temple, not this world's temple. I want to say how we need to learn these lessons. Learn these lessons from Paul. And not just individually, but also as a church. Because we're at an important point in our, our church life. We've got to be looking at things like vision. We've got big decisions to make. So I want to say at this point, let's make sure that our priority is God's glory. Not ours, His. Let's make sure that our focus is on building His church, establishing His kingdom, reaching out in mission in Jesus' name. And let's search our hearts and be ready 
to offer up our gifts and talents, our resources, our lives, all that we are, to that end. Let's do that. Because as we do, then we'll be living as mature Christians. Then we'll truly be a mature church. And we'll be in that place where God, by the Spirit, by His Word, can lead us and guide us. And be assured, He'll do it. It's His desire to do it. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank You again for Your Word that teaches us of just where we need to be as a people if we're to be led into Your will, if we're to achieve Your purpose. Father, we need to be focused on Your glory. That's what needs to matter more to us than any personal happiness, personal reputation, or personal preference. Our focus needs to be on your glory. Lord, may that be the focus of your people here today. And may you lead us forward from this into your will for us as your church. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.